and welcome to today's podcast with Dr. Marty Macri on how self-funded employers can leverage trends in healthcare disruption to get better care and lower costs in 2022 and beyond. This program is brought to you by the Healthcare Administrators Association, HCAA. For over 40 years, HCAA has supported third-party administrators and the self-insured employer industry through educational opportunities and leading industry experts. For information on joining HCAA, please visit our website, hcaa.org. I'm your host, Ramesh Kumar, and I'm on a mission to bring value to the healthcare system through improved transparency. And my goal from this podcast is to give you one aha moment that you can implement in your business, whether you're a TPA, broker, or an employer. In my day job, I run a company called Zaki Point Health that helps self-insured employers and their employees find meaning from their healthcare data. Please like or share this podcast on your favorite podcasting tool so we can bring together a community of like-minded professionals. Before we begin, I would like to bring you a word from our sponsor, MedWatch. MedWatch one of the most trusted and respected population health management and medical cost containment companies in the industry. It was founded in 1988 with the reinsurance industry to provide effective solutions combined with meaningful and informative reporting. URAC accredited utilization case and disease management programs are administered with a commitment to partnership and quality demonstrated daily by a dedicated staff of clinicians, technicians, account executives, customer service, sales, and support teams. Today, we have Dr. Marty Macri, a surgeon and a professor at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, and also the author of the book, Price We Pay, and a commentator on various COVID-19 policies and guidelines, and a researcher along with that on provider quality. Dr. Macri has a wealth of experience and is passionate about bringing real change to benefit the consumer of healthcare. Today, we're going to talk about disruption to the healthcare system and go underneath the areas of focus to address the inappropriateness of care and the price we pay in our healthcare system. On our podcast, you will learn what are some of the trends in 2022, also provider quality and the inappropriateness of care, price gouging and monopoly pricing in certain markets, and other trends like bundle pricing, plan design, direct contracting. So let's dig in. Today, I'm really excited having read your book, Price We Pay. Beyond that, really looking into the future, many of the things that our TPAs, brokers, self-insured employers are really battling with, thinking about not just COVID and post-COVID. So I'm really excited to have you. There are many, many topics we'll cover. Let me maybe just first start with a question, if you could just to introduce yourself a bit more, maybe specifics around looking into the future, how you're involved in the COVID-related activities, public policy stuff. So if you could introduce yourself to our audience, and then I have a whole bunch of questions I'd love to uh, dig into with you. That sounds great. Well, good to see you, Ramesh, and um, I'm a huge fan and keep up the great work with Saki Point and love the work of uh, Healthcare Administrators Association. Looking forward to the upcoming conference, so it's great to, to be with you here. I'm interested in the things in healthcare that are not getting attention, that should be getting attention. And when we go to medical school, we're immediately pegged into a specialty. People harass you from day one. 
what are you going into and come to our specialty and our little pond over here is better than that pond over there. And what we lose sight of is the entire system. What if you're interested in fixing the broken system as a whole? What if you're interested in how we should be more honest and transparent? What if you're interested in how medicine could be more democratized and available and how we can overcome barriers to access and how we can be more uh, holistic in our research. That is understanding how we can do better from bedside observations of nurses and physicians. What if you're interested in the redesign of the entire delivery system of healthcare? There's no specialty for that. There's no specialty for the redesign of healthcare. That is what my research team and I are committed to is what we call the redesign of healthcare. It is all of those things we talked about, but none of them individually. It is not captured with the term holistic or public policy or public health, but it includes all of those things. So that's a little bit of where I've landed in my journey in healthcare. And part of it is just doing all the things you're supposed to do in academic medicine, going as high as you can go in terms of all the achievements that they throw out as the currency of university medicine. But at the end, you realize most of it's empty. Most of it is rewarding small incremental discoveries and not big changes. And you realize you can keep showing up to work, getting on the treadmill and just collecting your paycheck every two weeks. Or you can take a step back and say, hey, we've got to talk about the overall delivery of care. It's broken. We're disconnected from the patients. And we've got a giant middle industry that we've manufactured. And it has created many self-inflicted wounds. Let's talk about healing those wounds. I think you're very passionate about the clinical side, the quality and overall redesign, price transparency as well. Maybe if you could share a little bit more some of the work you're doing around this redesign and quality measurements, uh, because that really does relate to what the industry needs to do and use and leverage. One of the big questions that people have within healthcare and outside of healthcare is how do we lower healthcare costs? And that's a very good question. And historically, if you ask 10 people in healthcare, you'll get 10 different answers. And if you talk to 10 people in health policy, you'll get different answers. And so one of the goals I've had is to try to answer this question in an authoritative way that's backed by data and supported by observations of folks on the front line, people like yourself, people that are at HCAA and other folks in healthcare that have a real vantage point that most people don't have in healthcare. And really what I've figured out is that a lot of our cost crisis, or what I call our crisis of medical prices, boil down to two things. And that is, one, pricing failures in the marketplace, which invite a whole host of problems. And the second thing is inappropriate medical care. That includes over-treatment and under-treatment. But by far, over-treatment is dominating the market. We've not really created any ways to measure over-treatment in healthcare. So that is one of the major endeavors that we're deep into is how do you develop 
a way to measure the appropriateness of care, whether or not the person needed that lumbar spine fusion surgery, whether or not someone prescribing 16 medications on average for the typical senior in their primary care practice is an outlier. Are they an appropriate outlier or inappropriate outlier? And what do you do with outliers in medicine? Do you put them in jail or do you say these are doctors who need help and show them their data and allow them to auto-correct and hold their hand if they want help? This is the work that we're deeply involved in and it's called implementation science. And um, it comes from the academic discipline of human behavior change. And implementation science is basically saying now, what's the most effective way to change outlier behaviors around overtreatment so we can improve the health of a population? And a nice bonus side effect is it reduces uh, healthcare costs. For example, the best way to, to address drug pricing in the United States, which are spiraling out of control, is to stop taking medications we don't need. And the best way to address many areas of very expensive care in the United States is to have a focus on the appropriateness of care. So my team and I have developed hundreds of appropriateness measures, and we're using them in the marketplace. And it's been a a very, very worthwhile endeavor. And has it been quite an eye-opener in terms of uh, certain physicians or certain practices? The big question that's on my mind, so here I am this week on holiday in Florida, just like you. I'm with a couple of urologists who love their profession and talk a lot about that the doctor's always trying to do the right thing here. And so I'm kind of very curious, like, is it the hospital that is actually putting the system around them? Or is it inappropriate care is driven by certain individual doctors? For a layman like me and the administrators out there, where should we be digging into when we think about this inappropriateness of care? Yeah, so what I found is I think there's an attempt in health policy, at least in the academic field of public policy, to characterize each stakeholder in healthcare. And it's easier, right? It's, uh, if you will, it's lazier to have a global way to describe insurance companies and physicians and drug companies and PBMs. But the reality is that their motivations, their ethos depends so much on the individuals, on their company values, on their morals, on their local marketplaces. Some are competitive, some are non-competitive. And so what you find is this sort of almost disappointing realization that there's no one way to characterize any every stakeholder in healthcare. Every organization is its own organization with its own values. And so what you realize is that there are these wonderful disruptors within every industry. And there are folks who recognize, hey, the way this system is set up is broken. The financial alignment is totally messed up. I don't want to be a part of this system. I don't want to pass this system on to a future generation. This is not a system we designed. This is a system that we inherited and it's broken. And so you start seeing people now move and they're pushing the field and reducing inefficiencies. And that is probably the most exciting thing that I get to observe from my vantage point. So I guess the system and then within that, the actors, and we can't just take a blanket approach or statement 
and a lot of the time understanding that localized data can help us uncover. So maybe let's now look into the future, the next year or three years as we think about what's ahead for the self-insured employer market. What are some of the top three things that the employers, brokers and TPAs should be looking forward to or thinking about as you talk about this redesign as well? So what are the things we should be looking ahead? I think um, technically the incredible opportunity is in care navigation. And so that has often been seen as a holy grail in healthcare is steerage. And so that's one opportunity. Another is to promote relationship-based medicine. And I'd say a third is to enable all of this great care to, to happen in the context of direct primary care, which is growing like crazy across the country, as you know. And so in the steerage piece, we're really sort of walking on the surface of the moon for the first time, seeing things we've never seen before. And that is we're recognizing that it doesn't have to be impersonal. It doesn't have to be a rigid pre-authorization uh, algorithm that dictates where you go or can't go for care. Instead, we can create all sorts of incentives and a human touch. That is, we're not only going to tell you, hey, these are the doctors or hospitals that we believe in, that we trust, that we've had a good experience with, that they're, they're not perfect, no provider group is, but we've had a much better experience with these groups or this individual or this medical center relative to others or this group of medical centers relative to others. And so now if somebody comes in to the primary care clinic and that primary care clinic is coordinated with the TPA or self-funded plan, when the woman finds out that she's pregnant with a positive pregnancy test and the primary care doctor says, congratulations, they can also say, here's a couple OB doctors that I might suggest you consider. Now, that is so much more powerful than an insurance company saying, you're allowed to go here, you're not allowed to go there. Instead, what it does is it embeds a high value network within the intrinsic referral system of a practicing physician who has the trust and they have the access. And so again, people should be able to have a choice and they can go wherever they want. But if they go to one of the providers in the preferred network or in the trusted network or in this alliance, you know, they should be able to be rewarded. Essentially, what we're doing then from a, on a population level is rewarding high-value medical care. Because all of a sudden now, the doctors who are not a part of that preferred network are wondering, why not? And trust me, as a physician, doctors are very competitive by nature. And if they find out that there's a stream of patients going from this health plan or, or this clinic to another provider group, they're going to wonder why. Now, what if that reason why is that 
Uh, OB group A has a C-section rate of 60%, and OB group B has a C-section rate of 19%, and their neonatal outcomes are similar in both groups. Well, it could be known that this group performs better on a high-value appropriateness measure. What if group A is charging $41,000 for a routine, uncomplicated vaginal delivery, and group B is charging $10,000, or let's say $6,500, which is a reasonable fair price we do see in the market. Well, again, why are we so opposed to letting the market work to reward quality and price, both? And not prioritizing price over quality, but just saying, this is what a functional market should be. The fundamental problem we have in healthcare is that we have non-competitive markets. And when you have a non-competitive market, the temptation from a policymaker standpoint or from a consumer standpoint is to create rules to prevent bad behaviors. But the fundamental change that's needed is to transform those markets to make them competitive. And we do see that now. And we see that through the power of steerage. And much of that is done in the context of direct primary care and care coordination. So I would say those are three powerful tools that we're seeing right now just do very well and thrive in the marketplace is Hmm. high value network creation, care coordination, and direct primary care. I think you talked a little bit about the steerage being done more effectively through primary care. And you talked a lot about not just using cost, but using quality. And within quality, there's a nuanced way of looking at quality for OBGYN practice versus for some other kind of practice. How do you see this complexity of, let's say, provider quality data making into the hands of the DPC office? Is that something that's there in the next year, three years, or is it something way beyond So part of it is measurable with hard numbers, and part of it is intangible. That is, it's subjective, and it lives in the local culture of the physician's understanding of fellow physicians. In other words, it happens through accountability. When there is an assumption of downstream risk of some kind by the referring physician or by the referring entity, that creates accountability through the process. And that assumption of downstream risk could be financial risk. It could be reputational risk. It could be moral risk, which is probably the most powerful tool is generally speaking, if doctors find out that somebody is doing something they shouldn't, they will refer uh, around them or away from that individual. That's how a competent marketplace should work. Not just, Hey, you know, you need a, collect to me, I got a golf buddy who you can go to. I mean, that's fine if the golf buddy is a good surgeon, but really it should be based on quality, number one, and then number two, data. Now we're starting to have a lot of disruptors in healthcare provide that information and they're providing it to self-funded plans who are saying, look, we want to use it. It's not going to be a hard thing where this is the only metric that we're going to use, but it's a factor. And it may be a factor in how we sculpt networks and create incentives and create preferred networks for people to go to. So 
and the work you're doing is part of that good work. So thank you again, Ramesh, for your work in that space. Oh, thank you. I mean, there's a lot, as you said, is going on. And the issue often ends up being is, well, how do we make it practical? How do we get this in the hands of the people who are going to be effective? And how do we create some of these standards, whether it's measurement standards or making this data easily available? I think that's where some of the work that you're doing and others who are coming from the clinical lens to expose this, make it available, make it easy, becomes key. And so I think maybe the questions around cost and quality data for the care navigation, direct primary care, as I'm hearing, is it's there. And within 2022, we should start to see more of this being utilized more effectively. If there was a message to the TPAs, brokers, and self-funded plans, how should they get themselves down this path? How could they make this a practical next step? Well, I think it can be daunting as an idea. You know, all of these concepts can be exciting to cheer on if we're having a pep rally. But when it comes time to, you know, redesigning the structure of a plan, it can be a little daunting. So I would encourage folks out there to talk to folks that have already taken that step. And that's the beauty of the forum that Carol Berry has convened in the HCAA. And also get some help. There are terrific consultants, strategists, brokers who are very good at designing a strategy that is ideal for your business. And so that is the opportunity right now. And we're seeing leaders emerge in this area who are saying, hey, let's think about all of the factors, the diversity of physicians, the lack of monopoly power of the provider groups or the monopoly power of the provider groups. That changes the, the dynamic a lot. All that to say, the design of these strategies is local. And so getting help to say, here's a physician group we can do a direct contract with. Here's a hospital we can start having an arrangement with. Here are all sorts of what I call relationship tracked add-ons that we can use to either deliver high quality care or deliver high quality care and save costs. Sometimes saving money may not be a goal for some employers if there's a very attractive opportunity that will improve health in their population. In other words, employers remarkably are willing to spend the extra dollar to make a health benefit available to their uh, employees. And that's noble. That's impressive. That's good. I mean, that's, that's, and that's where there's demand in the marketplace when people sign on. I mean, heck, when people take jobs now that they're attracted to veterinary benefits. So we've, we've got a series of relationship-based tracks now in the wellness space that are truly delivering a value, not just, hey, we're going to count your steps. I mean, there's a lot of waste in the wellness space. And I've, of course, written about this in the, in the price we pay. But there are some new things now that are not just, hey, here's an app, but they're actually holding people's hands. For example, if I may, somebody yep. comes in 
to my office and they smoke. I see that on their chart. Now, historically, I just, we as physicians, we just give them the guilt trip, right? Like, oh, you know, you're smoking, you really shouldn't, blah, blah, blah. Your risk of cancer is one in X number. And okay, that strategy it does not work. It's broken. We've been doing it for decades. It does not work, okay? <laughs> Instead now, what we've matured to is to recognize that we can ask a screening question to identify those who are motivated to improve. And I'll ask them, I see that you smoke. Is this something that you're really committed to stopping? Or is this something where you're okay staying where you're at with smoking at this point in your life? Either answer is okay. I just want to understand what your thinking is. And I won't think anything less of you, regardless of what you say. Immediately, it removes that sort of guilt complex that we put on. It allows people to be honest. And guess what? A bunch of people say, you know what? I'm fine. I don't want to talk about it. But there are some people who say, ah, I just had a granddaughter and I really do not want to be smoking. I'm really motivated to stop, but I can't. I have such a hard time stopping. That's the person we want to hold their hand invest, spend money on them, give them a lot of touch and walk them through a program with accountability and a lot of relationship. And we're not going to do that as their physician. I'm certainly not going to modify my practice to make that a big core part of what we do. But there are providers out there and they may be remote. They may be video chatting. They may be texting. They may be in your community, but these are services now where we're recognizing, let's identify those who are candidates to truly improve their health and let's invest a lot of money in them. And we'll do so by screening who are ideal uh, to, to, to spend money on. Now think about the implications of using that strategy with obesity, with diabetes management, thyroid management with mm-hmm. non-compliance of medications, which doctors sort of rediscover every 10 years is like half of every person we prescribe medications to as if they're, you know, shocked as if this is like a scientific discovery every 10 years, we do it almost forgetting what we already know on the topic. So this is the exciting thing. I call it relationship-based medicine, but there's a lot of these tracks out there. I, you know, I know of one that I'll be describing this at the conferences for women during pregnancy. Remote doctor checks in with them and figures out, are they high risk? If so, they want to offer to chat with them frequently. And if they're low risk, they'll just offer to be available for questions. And then they're the second opinion doctor, basically, where they have your record and they have your chart and they know who you are and they have a relationship with you is the doctor that you will check in with or somebody who has all of your records remotely just before you deliver or during the labor and delivery process. If you have questions or you feel like they're doing something that you don't understand or you you don't know if you should be having a C-section because they're strongly encouraging it and it doesn't make sense to you, and you are in direct communication with that remote physician who is super qualified in that field, This is good, right? We're talking about 
empowering patients, giving them more information, giving them more options, educating them, and providing a relationship where there's also accountability when we physicians need to ask people to do certain things for the benefit of their health. This is an exciting movement. It's, I call it relationship-based medicine, and it's something that's being unlocked right now by health plans and employer groups. They're saying, let's unleash the innovation here and let's let them do their good work in our population. Well, this is a huge area. I guess you touched on a multiple type of these programs, approaches, relationship-based medicine, a bit of behavioral science where you find out the motivation and you use some of the virtual technology to data flow easily and enable connecting of the specialized service. So maybe if you had to take a step back on this this whole marketplace of these specialized relationship-based medicine programs, what kind of categories of things, if you can expand on that, a self-insured employer, particularly the smaller ones that they should be thinking about, like, oh my God, yes, we should be doing a digital diabetes program, or we should be doing the second opinion, we should be doing all of these things. I think, again, it can be daunting, right? So the idea is that how can somebody help walk you through all these different options? And then how can you evaluate them? Because sometimes there are these benefits that get added on and it's very hard to know, are they being used? Are they really benefiting anyone? Are people who go through the programs finding value in them? Right now, this is all brand new stuff. And so right now we're learning a lot as a profession about what's working, what's not working. You look at mental illness, for example. We have been using this sort of very primitive approach of letting sort of every man for themselves in terms of the providers doing all sorts of different strategies. And now we're learning, hey, there's best practices and there are things that people respond well to. And that is a field that's maturing right now. Looking ahead, maybe we'll do a quick fire questions and answers on topics like bundled payment, price gouging, direct contracting. Maybe if you could, in a few words, help us, help our listeners understand the approach they could take or what's ahead in the next year to three-year horizon. Yeah, let's, let's talk about those individually. Go ahead, Ramesh. Yeah, so bundled payments. So bundled payments are better than unbundled payments, but they're not the silver bullet that many people think they are. The reason is that many of them are triggered by doing something. That is, they're triggered by the operation. They really should be triggered instead by the clinical presentation that brings somebody to care. That is the knee pain or the back pain. So in terms of payment design, it is a better design than what we currently use. It allows services to be shoppable, but it does come with the assumption that they need that service when sometimes a second opinion offered through another group might suggest, hey, maybe you don't. So valuable, good, a step in the right direction, not the silver bullet. And then maybe direct contracting with specialist surgery networks or or just direct contracting. I've, I really have not heard of 
anyone who's entered into a direct contract agreement and had a bad experience with it on either side. Now, sometimes physicians have told me as a part of this direct contract, I'm not allowed to order this test or I have to get this test. But besides those, and that's rare that you have the, the direct contracting intermediary dictate what the doctors can do or what they can't order. The direct contracting arrangement is super attractive for the provider group, not just the group doing the contracting, because they see an elimination of a ton of waste. What is that waste? It is a massive world of essentially negotiating a rate and then chasing people down for that residual payment. That is, they're not only processing the claim with the person paying uh, the surrogate, but also with the patient themselves. No fun. Uh, we doctors like to take care of people. We don't like spending our time on claims adjudication and peer-to-peer and pre-authorizations and debt collection and negotiating rates. So direct contracting is very appealing to providers, far more appealing than many providers ever anticipated. People did not see direct contracting taking off as quickly as it is right now. I talked to a group recently that's doing a lot of direct contracting on the East Coast, and these guys were new to healthcare. They were very intimidated by the entire process of going to provider groups and saying, we'd like to enter into a direct contract with these employers or health plans that we represent. And they're telling me we could not believe how easy it was. We couldn't, we would say, hey, this is what we're getting paid from this other group. Can you offer this amount? And the answer was yes. Or, hey, we see that you're charging with your negotiated rates something in the ballpark of $3,000. Would $1,500 be something you can do? And they'd be like, okay. And these people out there, they'd be like, had no idea it'd be this easy. Now, when they're up against a big behemoth monopoly, medical center may not be as easy. But right now, we're seeing terrific disruption in the marketplace. By the way, monopoly power is the one thing that keeps us up at night in the health policy circles. It is the, the ultimate future risk in healthcare and in pricing. And monopoly pricing is real. It's already started to creep into certain markets and it is the future. It's what we need to focus on. Those of us who are working on the future of medicine, futurists, people who are saying, okay, here's the dynamic of what's happening in the market right now. What's it going to look like in 20 years? Right now, that is the one threat that many of us are concerned about. And we're actually talking about more openly and honestly, because unless we address it now, these problems will take a long time to uh, fix. And so you imagine policy being in place where if there's a lot of consolidation going beyond a certain level, it needs a proper approval, just like the tech circle has, or is that that kind of where, where things will go to avoid this monopolization in particular markets? Or are there other things that the employers could do or could be thinking about in their own regions? I think the employers are doing everything they can. I think the problem is the state attorney general in many states 
is asleep at the wheel and many times they're running for governor and so they don't want to upset a certain stakeholder group. I think that the hospitals are also coming with a message of love and hope and quality. And they're saying, look, if we can merge, then we're all going to be a one big happy family. Look at all the community benefit we do. It's going to be better. And sometimes it, it is. But unless there are safeguards uh, to prevent price gouging from monopoly pricing, when I say safeguards, there's certainly there are rules, but there are also the best safeguard is competition. And so when we eliminate competition in the marketplace, we're in uncharted territory. And that is where we have seen in parts of the country where one giant power is the only place that people really can go to for anything urgent, it runs a risk. It runs a risk. Now, look, doctors and hospitals should be paid fairly. They should be paid well, in my opinion. But no one should accept price gouging and predatory billing in any marketplace. And as you know, this has been a lot of the advocacy work that my team and I have worked on. And what we believe is the ultimate check of this type of stuff is public accountability. That is good local journalism and good public accountability for practices. After all, hospitals are community institutions and they should be accountable to their communities. And so that kind of also, in some ways, educating whether it's the employer or the members about the billing practices to really, I guess at a localized level, having that knowledge and education can also create a balancing power? Yeah. Look, billing quality is medical quality. And so when we measure medical quality, we should also be measuring the billing quality. And that, and that is something that we can define with a, a five-star scoring system. We can use certain basic criteria in coming up with a billing quality score. These are things that basically just represent civility in any normal aspect of society you would be able to ask a question and get an estimate and be able to get some customer service if you have a complaint or there's a mistake. And knowing what the price is relative to, say, the Medicare allowable amount, not that that's the perfect reimbursement number, but having some reference point is something that consumers are demanding. They should be able to have. Now, Many medical centers and provider groups are good on this stuff. And if they're good, let the market reward that good billing behavior. And if they're bad on pricing and billing quality, then let the market enable people to steer their service, their care around those people if they choose to. If we can empower the marketplace with the signposts and data that it needs we can see tremendous transformation. And I believe what you'll ultimately see is a global reduction in medical prices, a higher efficiency of the system, and more satisfied provider groups because they're focused on what they do best, and that is taking care of patients. Kind of last question that leads from this, price transparency regulation is coming around these topics of empowering the market. What do you envision will be the result of this price transparency? What are the scenarios, that good scenarios that you imagine a year or three years down the line? 
Yeah, so the good stuff is happening. Overall, I am optimistic on healthcare with a little bookmark in our concern about monopoly pricing downstream, but the good stuff is happening. The innovators, disruptors, they are hard at work. These are very smart people. They bring in a fresh perspective, sometimes from the business world. And they are saying, hey, here are some things we can try to do better. We're going to see more transparency around pricing, around negotiated rates. It's hopefully going to contribute to a competitive marketplace. And that data is forthcoming. Now, some hospitals are not complying with the price transparency executive order. We did see the government increase the fine for non-compliance, which is a step in the right direction, in my opinion. And companies like Turquoise Health, which is one group I work with, are saying, let's go out there and scrape all the data and make it available. And then for places that want to engage in direct contracting, let's provide some sort of easy, simple user interface that allows them to do that very, very efficiently. So I think that those are all good steps. If you think about where we've come from, it was only, gosh, a dozen years ago in our lifetime when signing up for insurance was a nightmare. You'd get a giant catalog of the different plans and benefits. You'd have to go through some intense screening, which was basically a way just to figure out who was healthy and who was high risk on an actuarial basis. And then you submit a giant application. And if anything went wrong in your care where you got a big bill, they'd come back and pull some gotcha that you didn't fill out the application correctly. I mean, it was a nightmare. You'd fill out these applications. I would hear nightmare stories of people going through such a horrible, painful experience with these applications and hearing back and reapplying and you need to fill this out and send us this. People actually thought, you know, this is so painful. If I get sick, I'd rather just die than go through all this paperwork. And so that's where we've come from. And that, remember, that was just 12 years ago. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of good stuff happening. This is this is actually fantastic. I think we touched on many, many topics. Really thank you for taking the time and your kind of message ahead, very optimistic message that high-performance networks and how that feeds into direct primary care is a central point. It's a really powerful way for managing healthcare risks, costs, and better outcome and using the care navigation approach. So I, I appreciate you sharing your thoughts. My pleasure. Great to be with you, Ramesh. Keep up the great work, and I will see you soon. Thank you, Marty. Really appreciate it. Look forward to it. Okay. Take care. Bye. And I would like to thank MedWatch, our sponsor of this show. Please join us again for another podcast in the series brought to you by HCAA's Voices of Self-Funding. Please like and share so we can build a community of like-minded people and tell us about topics that we should bring to you next. Please watch your email for updates on upcoming guests. I'm your host, Ramesh Kumar of Zaki Point Health.